If you brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would invite you to find Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. There is a story of a famous artist by the name of Steinberg who is famous for his depiction of Christ on the cross. In fact, it's called Christ on the Cross. And while he was doing this masterpiece of his, he, he came across a beautiful gypsy girl. He, he was just absolutely slain by her beauty. And in fact, so much so, he asked her to join him while he was painting his masterpiece, Christ on the Cross. Uh, over the weeks and months that would follow, uh, this gypsy girl would sit and just watch him uh, paint on the canvas. And one day, just... Flat out, out of nowhere, the gypsy girl said, he must have been a very wicked man to be nailed to the cross like that. And Steinberg was so shocked because all of this time he'd never ever said anything to this gypsy girl about the subject of his depiction. And so without hesitation, he looked at the the young woman, and he said, he said, just the opposite, quite the contrary. He was a very, very good man. In fact, the best man that ever lived. In fact, he died for others. And there was a bit of a pause as the girl's eyes went from him back to the canvas, and she looked at Steinberg, and she said, did he die for you? The trial of our Lord Jesus Christ falls into two different parts. There are there are there are actually six trials, religious and civil, and three of each. My intention these next few weeks is not to focus on the illegalities of those trials, but from start to finish, the trial of Jesus would be a defense lawyer's dream. It would be his dream case, easily thrown out of court in modern day, in the modern era. He was considered guilty, for one thing, before the trial ever began. It was conducted at night. That was clearly guilty. Uh, He wasn't even allowed to call any witnesses himself, another illegality. The Sanhedrin served not only as judges, but prosecutors. False witnesses were secured. Even though the law of that day for perjury was to receive the punishment of the accused. In fact, the death penalty sentences were to be carried out only after three-day waiting periods so that those who would bring the accusation could seriously, you know, look into their own hearts and consider whether this guy deserves to die. And I got to thinking about that. A defense lawyer's dream. Think about that. The very thought struck me the other day because Jesus is a defense lawyer. The Bible actually describes Jesus as a defense lawyer for his children. Have you ever read that, where it says in 1 John, 
My little children, I write these things to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone sins, we have a lawyer with the Father. We have an advocate. We, we have one who stands beside the Father and, be, and beside us, for that matter, as a lawyer. That's what Jesus is for those who love him. Jesus, our defense lawyer, who defends us in our trials, would not defend himself. He who argues his case for others opened not his mouth when he was accused. In a very real sense, Jesus' whole life was a trial. From the get-go, tried in the wilderness, tried by his detractors, tried by his own followers even. But the trial or trials that led to his death is the focus of our messages these next couple of weeks. It's difficult to just jump into a series. I, I have, I, there's no way I can tell you how... This is the hardest thing I do. I'd rather go back to Romans, which I can't believe I even said that. But you deserve a context. And, and time won't allow us to put you know, a, a, a real context around... We're jumping right into the passion account of Christ. And, and even the very last week of Jesus' life was a flurry of activity, the kind of which is almost unimaginable. It included traveling and teaching and confronting and cursing a fig tree and, that just went and wilted within moments and cleansing the temple the second time. And that was just the first two days of the week. And by the way, consider this the next time you do a, just an independent, isolated, take it out of the context and study it for itself, of the parables. Consider this. The parable of the two sons. The parable of the wicked tenants. The parable of the stone which the builders rejected. The parable of the wedding feast. The parable of the fig tree. The parable of the porter. The parable of the master of the house. The parable of the faithful and unfaithful or evil servants, the parable of the ten virgins, the, 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 the parable of the talents, all took place on Tuesday of the last week. And then add to that his instruction about paying taxes to Caesar, the question about the resurrection. You know, you know this guy had a wife and, uh, you know... Uh, you know, this woman had a husband, rather he died, and then, and then she had a bunch more, and who's, 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 whose husband's going to be hers? And the that all took place. As well as blasting the scribes and the Pharisees, those seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, the discussion on what the greatest commandment was. Weeping over Jerusalem. Seeing the widow with two mites and exalting her gift. Dealing with the Greeks who came to him and wanted to see him but didn't get an opportunity. And then the entire Olivet Discourse where he lays out the future of the world. That also all took place on Tuesday. All of that. Tuesday. And couple that with the fact 
that all those things he did, all those lessons he taught, all those parables he gave, all of that futuristic, that which he laid out, he did so knowing that he would be dead in a couple of days. In fact, after concluding his teaching on the future, he told them in T minus two days, he'd be hanging on a cross. That's where we pick it up, chapter 26, verse 2. He says, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that's the Olivet Discourse, this is Tuesday of his Passion Week. He says to his disciples, you know, after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. I want to point out a few deeply encouraging truths from this beginnings of Jesus' sorrows that will point you to this Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, strength in your trial, and preparation for anything that is to come in your life. And the first thing I want to point out to you is that Jesus was never a puny pawn. He was part of a great plan. I say that to you because right after he makes this statement, we, the scene switches. It says in verse 3, Then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth. That means to bait. Curious the idea of baiting a hook. And kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, we're not going to harmonize all the Gospels because it would take so long to do that. But I do want to give little, little vignettes, if possible. Bring in some composite of what's going on, what was going on in its entirety. Uh, John, and I've got it up here for you. Here's what was going on, and John tells us this. We won't put it up. We'll take that down for just a second because I want to give it a context. This is in John chapter 11. Here's what it says. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did. That is, he just raised Lazarus from the dead. They believed him, but some, of, some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are, we, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will take away both our place and our nation. So you get a little insight as to the, the, the incredible greed, the selfish greed of these religious leaders. They're all about maintaining their jobs. And it's in, in light of this that we have these words from Caiaphas. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. It's like, what did he just say? He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied. This unsaved man prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And thank God for that, amen? From that day forth, they plotted to kill him. So that's the context how noble, by the way, of Caiaphas to wrap his hatred of Jesus in patriotism. The venom of murder 
flowing through the veins of these leaders. In just two days, Jesus would face this Caiaphas. But how would they pull this off? So there's a plot going on here. How, how would they do this? Because every attempt they've made it thus far, you know, came to naught. I just thought about this. Remember in John 7 where the, the, the temple religious leaders went out to get Jesus? They couldn't get him. They came back. They said, why didn't you bring him back? And they said, well, because no, nobody ever talked like this guy. So the plot is thickening here. And they're, they're saying, we've got to get this guy and we've got to kill him. How are they going to do it? Well, little did they know their luck was about to, uh, to change. Because embedded within the cherished group of disciples was a traitor. We know him. We know him as a man whose name means praise. But no one ever deserved less praise than this man. You don't name your kids after this guy. You don't even name your dog after this guy. His plans for personal exaltation were fading as Jesus predicted his death was only days away. And when Jesus announced that the anointing that he received, and that, that's, that takes place right after that with this woman who comes to him back there in, in, uh, in Matthew 26, the woman comes and pours the expensive ointment upon Jesus. You remember the story, and there's this big outbreak. Oh my, this what a waste of money. We're even told in John's gospel, it's Judas who spoke up. I mean, this stuff, we could have, you know, this is such a waste. And John gives us a little insight into the character of Judas. All he wanted was more money in the coffers so that he could pilfer more money. He was a thief. So, At this point, if you'll notice there in Matthew 26, Jesus says, don't trouble her, verse 10, for you always have the poor with you. In pouring out this this ointment, verse 12, on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial. Now, I want you to, I think that Judas understood what Jesus was doing before all the rest of them did. I think at this point, that. He re, he's really going to do it. He's going he's gonna to die. And I'm going to be out. And, and th- the reason I say this is because you need to know that all of this planning that was going on was not a surprise to Jesus. And while this time seems to be incredibly fluid, there was never a doubt in Jesus' mind. In other words, you got Judas... I mean, you think about what Judas was doing. I mean, Judas, Judas traveled. He did miracles. He taught with the rest of the disciples. They, and, and, the, and the context of the story tells us the disciples had no clue that he was a traitor. None whatsoever. But Jesus did. In fact, uh, I don't think I told you to put it up there, but if you, you could turn over, turn back to Matthew chapter 19. I want to show you something that's very interesting to me. Matthew 19, verse 28. And if you can come to it, you can throw it up there. But 19, 28. Um, I want you to see how careful Jesus was with his wording. This is before the Passion account ever began. 
In Matthew 19, verse 28, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, he's talking about the millennial kingdom to come, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now stop there. Now, if you're Judas and you hear this, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? I'm in. I'm ruling with Jesus. Twelve thrones. I mean, there'll be a big throne for Jesus, but I got me a throne too. But look very carefully at how Jesus worded it. Judas was in this group. Look how Jesus worded it. He said, truly I say to you, in the new generation when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, watch this, you who have followed me will sit on the 12 thrones. Jesus knew he had a traitor in the midst. And Judas, in no way, shape, or form, was following Jesus from his heart. The 12, would there, will there be 12 thrones? Absolutely. You've got to believe the words of Jesus. Amen. But he's obviously referring to the 11 and Mattathias, who would get added to the group later on. What am I saying? I'm saying that Jesus was no pawn. He knew it was going on. He tells his disciples then to prepare for the Passover. You go back to chapter 26. Judas, by the way, let's pick it up. Judas betrays in verse 14. Then one of the 12 whose name was Judas Iscariot, Iscariot rather, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, which is what the Old Testament said would happen. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. I think Judas did this because he figured it out. Jeez, I'm going to lose my throne on this deal. So he cashes in. He's a wicked man. In verse 17 and following deals with the preparation of the Passover. Remember, this first point I want to make is that Jesus was not a pawn. He was a part of a great plan. So they're preparing for the Passover, the highest of all the Jewish feasts, the celebration of the Exodus, the death of the, Pas- the Paschal Lamb, the substitutionary atonement, at least for one year. All of this was going to happen within a couple of days. And so the disciples come to Jesus and they say, you know, where, where, where should we get ready for this big event? Look at Jesus says in verse 18, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, teacher says, my time's at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. Does that sound like strange directions to you? I mean, seriously. We know from other accounts it was Peter and John that he sent out. I mean, think about it. I mean, if you put the other accounts together, Jesus says, you know, you're going to see a guy, he's carrying water. Men almost never did that, so it would have been, he would have stuck out like a sore thumb. You follow him here, he's going to get a room ready and all this kind of stuff. So it's very elaborate. But, you know, no address, per se. Why didn't he just say, there's a big upper room on the corner of, you know, Olive Grove and Temple Street. Get that one ready for us, will you? Why didn't he do that? Because Judas was in the room. 
and he was plotting to kill Jesus. And it would have been a perfect place for a night raid. So what does Jesus do? He, he says, go in the city, you're going to find this guy, and blah, blah, blah. And they're probably going, okay. It happens just like it. Hey, imagine Judas going back to these guys. Okay, hey, where are they going to have the Passover? Judas said, um, well, he told us, but I, I really don't know. Why? Well, it's hard to explain. Listen, men were plotting, but God had planned. And that's the way it's always been. Later on, Peter, in his Pentecostal message in Acts 2, says these words. He says, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But notice it was all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, that was true of Jesus, you know, but not my life. Did you know that God, God cares about your life and everything that's going on in your life as much as he cares or cared about Jesus? It's true. His sovereignty involves every single detail of your life, both good and bad. I mean, and, and they should have known this. The psalmist said as much in Psalm 139. Remember what the psalmist said? The psalmist said, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. This is when I'm in the womb. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there wasn't even one of them. That's how much God cares for you. Every detail of your life. This is the reason the psalmist could say it in another place. I won't fear. The Lord is with me. What can men do to me? Jesus was not a pawn, and neither are you. God has a great plan he's working out in this world, and you are included in it. Here's the second thing I see from this beginning of sorrows account. Listen carefully to what I'm going to say to you. Jesus was never so distracted that he wasn't thinking about his disciples. To me, this is, I love this element of the Passion account. He was never so distracted. And believe me, he was distracted. But never so distracted that he wasn't constantly thinking about his beloved Even at the cross, remember that, Father, forgive them. Woman, as he looks at his mother, there's your son. Take her home. Take care of her. And to the thief who said, Lord, you know, will you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. And just a day before he would be brutally beaten and scourged, beyond recognition, crucified, he was thinking about his disciples. He prayed for them in John 17. He prayed for us. Did you know that he prayed for us in John chapter 17? The Bible tells us as much. He didn't just pray for his disciples. He prayed for everybody who would eventually believe in him. And so... The context of this, if we bring in other passages, would include 
Things like John 14, where Jesus said to his disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. Right? You love that verse. You know, you believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. Are you kidding? What about his heart? He knew what he was facing. But he's thinking about his disciples. He's thinking about you. I marvel how disgustingly self-centered people become. How I can become when under pressure and conflict. Suddenly, otherwise beautiful Christians, you know, become ugly, self-centered, defenseless, or rather defenseful. Licking their own wounds instead of pouring healing oil into others. Not Jesus. And when he celebrated that first Lord's table, giving it new meaning in verses 26 and following, he's giving new meaning to the elements. He did so looking forward to just being with his friends. In fact, he entered that time of the Last Supper so excitedly. He was like a kid at Christmas time. Luke's gospel tells us, in fact, Eugene Peterson has captured Jesus' passion in a paraphrase when he says, in, when he, he, he paraphrases Luke twenty two fifteen when he says, you no idea how much I've looked forward to eating this Passover meal with you before I enter my time of suffering. Did you know that he said that? Because he was constantly thinking about him. He's constantly thinking about you too. He cares for you. He is never so busy but to care for you. I've, I've, I can't count the number of times new Christians, in fact, one of them in a, one of our Bible studies made a comment like this just the other day, very innocent. Well, you know, I don't want to bother him with trivialities. Listen, it just betrays the fact you, you've got to realize that Jesus is God. God is never bothered by our trivialities. His all Power prevents such limitations on him. What's more, in his divine capacity to know all, there is also his divine love is able to absorb all you have to put before him and keep on absorbing. He can take it all. You can give it all to him. All of your sins. All of your hurts. All of your trials. All of your pressures. Because he ever lives to make intercession for his beloved. Glory to God. And he can do that. Take all of your pain and not be the least bit depleted in his energy to take on the next batch when it comes around. Yet it's during these very times of distraction 
and heartache and pressure, that God will use you. Jesus was undergoing enormous pressure, and it would get worse. But what was he doing? He's thinking about his disciples. He's still ministering. He's still loving. A few years ago, I was on an airplane, and my heart was as heavy as it had been in a long time. I was sick on top of it, wasn't feeling good, and one of my kids was in trouble, and I had no idea how the outcome would take place. I got on the airplane, and I mean, I literally thought, I don't want to see anybody, I don't want to talk to anybody, I don't feel good. This is, I just got to get my act together here. I brought a book with me. Why I brought a book with me, I have no idea. I never opened the book. But I had it in my lap. And it was a book uh, by Alex Metextus, who wrote a book on Bonhoeffer, and it was just sitting in my lap. There was a subtitle, I can't even remember what it was, something about Savior to the Jews or something like that. As I sat in the plane with this book on my lap, there was a woman on my left, there was a woman on my right, which I wasn't happy about, but oh well. Not because they were women. I didn't mean it like that. Just because I wanted to be alone. And I wasn't able to be alone. And the, everything is tight. You've been on an airplane. And uh, so I just sat there, just in my own world, and just under tons of pressure. And plus I had the weight of the church on me and things going on here. And I had lots of things that had to be done. People were sick. People were dying. People needed to be saved. And I was just sitting there and this woman next to me said, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah. I almost said, yeah, like why do you ask? She said, well, I'm looking at your book there, and I see it says something about Jews. I'm an Orthodox Jew, and my, my, my daughter just became a born-again Christian. I have no idea what that means. Would you please explain it to me? <laughs> In a moment, God knocked me out of my self-absorbed stupor. Because he wants us to be used when we're hurting. He wants us to minister out of our hurt. And Jesus was never so distracted that he wasn't thinking about his disciples. He's never so distracted that he's not thinking about you. No matter what you're going through, he's been through worse. Speaking of pressure, this is the last thing I want to say this morning is Jesus' surrender in the garden prepared him for his surrender to the cross. Now, we're skipping over the... uh, I kind of ran over the top of that whole institution of the Lord's Supper. I did allude to the Luke passage. But we're skipping Peter's denial. We'll do that another time. The Garden of Gethsemane is in verse 36. It says, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. The word means oil press. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter 
And James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So the other disciples, the other eight are outside the gate somewhere, but he takes the other into the inner sanctum of the garden. It goes a little further, verse 38, and he said, my soul is very sorrowful. The Greek says, surrounded by sorrow. I don't know what surrounded by sorrow means, do you? I guess it means it's surrounded by sorrow. The olive grove that Jesus is in called Gethsemane is literally where they pressed oil out of olives to get oil. This holy ground would become a metaphor for the Son of God and the kind of pressure we cannot imagine, much less illustrate. Surrounded with sorrow. Listen, there is no darkness in this life that Jesus has not sunk darker still. to unfathomable darkness. Deeper than yours. Yes, I know, it's hard to believe. Anybody could have it worse off than you. But Jesus has been there. That's why he is our sympathetic high priest. How dark did it get? Well... Look at the last three words, or no, it's in the next three words, rather. Then, verse 38, he said to them, my soul, my soul is surrounded by sorrow, here it is, even to death. That's how dark it got. Spurgeon said, Jesus did not die in the garden, but he suffered as much as if he had died. And Dr. Luke tells us of a rare describes that as a rare medical condition that does occur on rarely called hematidrosis where the tiny capillaries glands break under enormous pressure and mix with sweat and out comes blood and sweat and that's what was happening with Jesus under pressure under that kind of pressure which is again not describable because there's no way we can describe it. The pressure of facing false accusation, the the pressure of being beaten and whipped and scourged and lacerated beyond recognition, the pressure of having nails driven into your hands and into your feet, the pressure of hanging on a cross for six hours, and the pressure of taking all of the sins Upon himself, the pressure of what he, just the, the, the sheer repugnancy of what he was going to have to endure. And then these immortal words, verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We love those words, don't we? Perfect combination of human frailty and divine commitment. Just like that. The cup, skip down, we jump over these guys falling asleep on the job. Verse 42. 
Again, for a second time, he went and he prayed, My father, if, it's, if it cannot pass unless I drink it, the cup, that is, your will be done. The cup he could not pass up, he would soon drink. And for Jesus, it would be a cup that would involve excruciating physical suffering of his body that he endured on the cross and indescribable agony of his soul as he ingested our sin. And just a couple things about surrender, and we will wrap it up this morning. This surrender that Jesus had, where he says, not your will, but my will, I lay my personal desires aside, it, it involves an emotional death to yourself. That's what you have to do when you surrender. You're dying to yourself, literally. And then it involves, are you ready for this? Secondly, surrender involves continual surrender. Did you notice, and probably you didn't because I just ran through so quickly, but he fell down on his face and prayed. And then it says in verse 42, again, for a second time, he went and he prayed. And, of course, he comes upon his disciples. They're still sleeping. Verse 44, so leaving them, he went away and prayed for a third time. And even saying the same thing. Interesting. He, he prays again the same thing. It, He prayed the same prayer. God doesn't hate repetition. He hates vain repetition. And whoever said that surrender to God is a one-time thing? Salvation is when you give your heart to Jesus, but we have to be freshly surrendered on a daily basis to God. Are you willing to do that? Surrender your job, surrender your friends, surrender your family. Are you willing to surrender your family? You always have to surrender yourself if you're going to draw near to God. And this is what Jesus is doing. There's one more thing about surrender from this passage I want to point out. And that is surrender brings peace. Let me tell you something. This hit me just, this hit me just late last night. This is the last time you'll ever see Jesus squirm. This is the last time you will ever witness the Lord Jesus Christ squirming. And he was squirming. But in this squirming, he surrenders himself to God. He gets up. If you go down to verse 45, he, he wakes up and the disciples says, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let's go see my betrayers at hand. There's almost a subtle peace over Jesus. Let's get this thing over now. As he awakens these guys. And if you follow the account, then he, he, he faces Judas, he faces Caiaphas, he faces Pilate, and all of the rest, and there is not a shred of squirming going on in him. He is at peace because he has surrendered to his father. Alexander McLaren wrote, he prayed his way to perfect calm, which is ever the companion of perfect surrender to God, unquote. Now I confess, 
it's nearly sacrilegious in my, in my heart to use this account of his unimaginable sorrow and surrender as an example of dealing with you know, our own pitiful sorrows and surrenders, except that Peter tells us to do that. Peter actually tells us that we can apply what Jesus was going to through in our own lives when he said, for this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you can follow in his steps. So we can look at this account. We have the divine word from God himself that we can, as we focus in on what Christ did for us, we can see there's application in our lives. When we surrender ourselves to God as Jesus did, he then prepares us to face both with both confidence and steadfastness whatever he has for us next. And just as Jesus' surrender in the garden prepared him for the cross where he died for us, our surrenders and our trials prepare us for the crosses that he tells us to take up in our own lives. But all of this is the beginning of sorrows in Jesus' life. All of this means nothing if he doesn't go to the cross, right? And die for your sins and for mine. It means nothing. And there are some of you here this morning who you just needed to get reoriented toward what Jesus endured for you. And make no mistake, he endured it for you. For you, for you, for you, for me. And it becomes incredibly personal. It has to if you want to know him. You have to believe that. You have to claim it for yourself. You have to believe that Jesus died for you and rose again for you. And you must receive him as your Lord and your Savior. So when Steinberg is sitting there painting this masterpiece... And the gypsy woman who's been watching for months finally just sort of blurts out, you know, well, he must have been a wicked man to be nailed to a cross. Steinberg goes into this apologetic over the person of Jesus. Oh, no, 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 he's a great guy. Greatest guy to ever live. In fact, he died for others. Imagine his shock when she looked at him and said, did he die for you? And the story has it, he was so shocked by her question, he knew he wasn't a Christian. And with that, he became one. He placed his faith in the person he was depicting on a canvas. And you know, this whole passion account is like a canvas, it's like an art, it's just unbelievable. Isn't it? It's powerful. But it's, it's just a picture if you don't personalize it. Will you do so today? Let's pray. Father, thank you 
Thank you for the passion of your son. And that all that he endured, even betrayal, was no mistake. He was no pawn. Your plan was great and it was cemented in eternity past. Thank you, Lord, as we look upon this account and we just, we just can't imagine that one would think of any, anyone but themselves to go through what Jesus went through and yet all of the time, mindful, mindful, ever so mindful of the ones he loved. And that all of this beginning of sorrows was but preparation for what agony was to come. And yet through it all, Lord, there was surrender, there was peace. As we pray here, if you're one of those individuals who would say, I, I need to personalize this today. I need to take Jesus off the canvas and accept him into my heart, then do so. Acknowledge your sin and believe that Jesus loved you and died for you, rose again for you. Just place your faith in him right now. Would you do that? Believer in Jesus, how are you enduring your trial? Do you see it as God's plan? Are you thoughtful of anybody else but yourself? And is your surrender continual and is it bringing about peace? We never see Jesus squirm after this moment. Are you? Lord, help us to think about these as we conclude our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.